0: Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Episode 8C, From East to the West, Continued. We will step right back to September 1876, when Stanley crossed Lake Tanganyika from Ujiji and again entered today's DRC at its eastern border. Across the lake, Stanley met Chief and Moana Ngoy of the Manyama peoples, Stanley was, and remained, a huge admirer of the now-deceased Livingstone, who had died at the age of 60, three years prior. He knew that Chief Imwana had met Livingstone, and Stanley was keen to hear of any recollections of the man. Imwana remembered him as always, being good to him, having saved him from the Arabs many times, often stepping between them and himself. The conversation continued, and Imwana soon made Stanley an offer. Stanley could become his ally and assist him in destroying his neighbours. This was the first of many such offers, and this was now the modus operandi of local geopolitics. Local tribes could ally with the Arabs, giving them a superior force, which would almost guarantee them victory. The victorious tribe would then take the women, children and local spoils, whilst the Arabs would gain the ivory and the people that they wanted. Stanley wanted neither ivory nor slaves, and refused. He was shocked at the chief's response. Europeans were not as good as the Arabs because, though it was true that they did not rob them of their wives, and steal their daughters, enslave their sons, or despoil them of a single article, the Arabs would have assisted them. Such alliances were now the main way in which a chief could increase his power, but it was comprehensively destructive for the prospects of the region. Stanley notes that he felt desperately sad for the impoverished Manyema, who were being enslaved and had everything taken from them. One of his guides, Safani, had been in the region only eight years prior, and described it as being densely populated with plentiful goats and pigs around every village. Now the land was devastated, and in such a short space of time the population, society and economy had almost broken down completely. The land was not the vibrant region that the Arabs had entered a short while ago. It had been consumed by greed and conflict. Stanley continued west for a month and saw the river Lualuba for the first time. Here, it was almost a mile wide, and impressed by its size, he compared it to the Mississippi. This was the river he had come to find, determined to follow it to emerge either in Egypt on the river Nile, Nigeria on the river Niger, or, more unlikely as it was flowing north, at the Kingdom of the Congo on the river of the same name. For Stanley, there lay ahead only 1,000 miles of blank space on the map, and although what he had seen so far did not fill him with confidence, he was resolutely determined to succeed or die in the attempt. Shortly after this conversation, he arrived at the arab Swahili town of Anwangye where Tipu Tip had been living a very comfortable life since he said goodbye to Cameron two years prior. Stanley found Tip to be a most remarkable man. He was dressed in spotless white robes and topped with what looked like a fez, with a silver dagger at his side. It was clear that life in New Bengal had been kind to him. They immediately struck a rapport, and despite the unsuccessful attempts of both Livingstone and Cameron beforehand, Stanley was able to convince Tip to support his expedition north. He would accompany Stanley with a force of 210 men for a distance that should take approximately six months. A £1,000 payment for his services would probably have helped in this convincing. But Tip was also impressed that it had only taken 43 days to reach him from Lake Tanganyika. Such a journey normally took three months he saw something in Stanley's toughness, the husk of which had been carved out in his early days, that earned his respect. Whilst Stanley was there, he saw firsthand how the Arabs were behaving with their newly established power. The Arab slaver, Umtagamoyo, launched a night attack on a local village and captured around 50 women and children as slaves. The preceding week a similar raid had yielded 300 people. Stanley, still in some ways the prodigy of Livingstone, heavily disagreed with this practice in his diary. Indeed, he fully denounced this on his return, but for now he needed tip and continued to cooperate with him. The parties of both men left Nyangwe in November 1876. Stanley's group was 146 strong, with 107 men and 39 women and children who were the wives and offspring of the senior Wangwana. The Wangwana were the Zanzibari support in his ranks, who he had recruited in their island home. Tip's group represented a further 300 people, with 140 gunmen, 70 spearmen, and 90 additional slaves, wives, harem concubines, or children. Arriving at the Lualuba they tried to trade for canoes, but being unsuccessful, they stole five canoes and set off with the current, travelling northwards in these vessels, and the infamous Lady Alice. The Lady Alice was a cutting-edge Victorian design. It was a modular metal boat which the expedition carried overland when they were not on the river. The boat had served Stanley well in his travels thus far and in his surveying of Lake Victoria which he had undertaken prior to arriving at Lake Tanganyika. As the parties travelled north, Stanley found the devastation that a short period of time under the Arab conquest had brought. His first taste of this was in a bustling market. There was a brief respite as the expedition engaged in trading and commerce for fresh food. It was abruptly halted. Seeing one half of the expedition all dressed in white, a small child screamed. The Wasmambye! The Wasmambye! This was the name of the slave traders. Instantly the market evaporated and people fled into the surrounding bush. The expedition solemnly departed. As they continued up the Lualuba, this event may have provided the explanation for the welcome that they received. They were attacked 32 times with spears, poisoned arrows, and more directly by war canoes bristling with men armed to the teeth. Such aggression was born of experience. These people expected the worst from people travelling up from the south. But as they travelled north, they went further and further from Tip's area of comfort. Only two months after the trip started, Tip wanted to return back. Stanley as ever had to use brinkmanship, and he said that if any of the men went back to Inyangwe, as they all wanted to, he would complain to the Sultan of Zanzibar, which Tip did not want. Nevertheless, just before New Year, and two months into the journey, Tip prepared to turn back. Stanley had to confront the fears of his collective, as only 38 of them had professed loyalty beyond this point. First to address this was Tip himself, who said that anyone deserting Stanley would be shot. Less threateningly, Stanley gave a rousing speech, shouting in Swahili. Sons of Zanzibar, lift up your heads and be men. What is there to fear? Strike your paddles deep, cry out bismillah, and let us forward. It didn't work particularly well. Facing an uncertain foray into the unknown, and with such a hostile reception so far, the men were not that enthusiastic. Stanley attempted to start a morale-boosting song, but the voices were croaky, and as they left, there were tears from both the team going back and the team going forward. Both groups thought that they would never see the other again. But soon the current swept them so far north that they had no longer any choice but to continue. In January 1877, the expedition began to meet tribes which had not met the Arabs, and they stopped calling the alarm of Wasmabye. They certainly stopped running away. Instead, they ran at them facing cries of neo armor, neo armor," which meant meat, meat, the team were hunted as prey. Nets were set in the river. They were as fish to be captured. They were now in the land of cannibals. To the already frightened group, this would have been terrifying, but Stanley's men remained loyal, and he built up a great kinship, despite his professed use of the whip. Academically, Stanley would have preferred to allow these tribes to become acquainted with the expedition. But giving their approaches, he didn't fight against the current, as it swept them rapidly away. It wasn't taking them anywhere safe, though. They were being floated to a huge set of seven waterfalls, now called the Bioma Falls. If they had plunged over these, they would certainly all have died. Seeing these, they pulled the Pirogues and Lady Alice out of the water and carried everything through the jungle on the river banks. But the falls were so numerous and the jungle was so thick that this took 27 days. Added to this, they were under constant threat with numerous attacks from the local villagers. The constant companion of the sound of war drums ringing through the canopy removed any ambiguity of their precarious situation. As they sweated and cut through the jungle, they dragged their vessels overland, but they kept their guns constantly at their side. The falls, of course, are still there, just east of Kisangani. There isn't much of a tourist industry, but they are a number one on the Lonely Planet recommendation. The Wasansguit River fishermen still practice traditional fishing there today. They can be seen on many travel documentaries, so this is not just history. Their amazing way of fishing, paddling their pirogues, standing up through the rapids and setting up huge wicker baskets to catch fish caught in this torrent are a remarkable sight and show great skill. The number two tourist recommendation in Kisangani is the imposing mosque, but we shall see why that is there a little later on. Finally, the expedition got past the thunderous falls, and they were able once again to return to the river. Here the river took a turn west, and for the first time Stanley noted that he heard the river referred to as Ekuta Congo. He finally knew where he was headed. He even had a brief period of respite as he was able to trade with tribes here. Coming close to the bank, he managed to refrain his men from opening fire, giving time enough to get close to exchange a copper bracelet and beads in return for food. He had to burn his copy of Shakespeare though, as the book was considered a source of witchcraft, although this was of little consternation. Such relative peace lasted only four days. As canoes came alongside, as they had been constantly since the falls, They were astonished when they came under gunfire. There was no doubt that he was heading towards the Portuguese. These people had been trading with the outside world for hundreds of years, and guns, ammunition and powder were of no mystery here. For a month, they continued subject to sniper fire and shot. But eventually, by March, they had travelled through the main areas of hostility. Although they were now making do with sign languages, as the languages of Swahili and the East were not spoken here, they started to be able to trade again. Stanley knew he was heading west as he saw the old American muskets these people had. He may have fielded a similar model himself at the Battle of Shiloh all those years ago, back in Tennessee. This time, he had nothing of value, though. With their contacts with the wider world well established, the people were uninterested in the trinkets that Stanley had, and they received little food. They also had guns, so taking food was off the table, so to speak. Stanley and the expedition were starving. The expedition's main enemy was now famine, which is soon to be joined by more and more, and more, rapids. As we know from the introduction, the river from Kisangani to Malibu Pool is wide and navigable. This was why Malibu Pool marked the western end of the navigable Congo River, linking San Salvador to the interior, the source of its wealth. But as Stanley moved west, the items he had to trade became less and less valuable. They were not willing to trade food for the beads and trinkets that Stanley had left. The first rapids after the pool were the Kinsuka Rapids. These were, and are, a ferocious torrent of water, as the 70-mile-wide Congo squeezes through the narrower channel on its way to the Atlantic. This was just the start. What followed was about 400 kilometres of fast-flowing river and rapids, flanked by gorges and mountains, which they would need to carry the canoes over. They could not abandon them, as they did not know if there were flat stretches of river ahead. For nearly six months they toiled. With each rapid and waterfall, danger was present. It started immediately, and in mid-March their best canoe, at 75 feet long, was dragged over a fall, even though 50 men held it. Men were constantly slipping down the gorges, including Stanley, who fell 30 feet. Six men were drowned on the lip of the falls as their canoe was whirled round and round before its rear pointed scarwards as it dropped over the edge. The mood was darkening. In June, the incident was repeated as Stanley looked on helplessly whilst a canoe of eight men rolled and tumbled before plunging over Zinga Falls. This was a sad and woeful day. Some of the best men on the expedition and Stanley's most trusted accomplices, in this and his former expedition were dying. Rahani, Faraji, Marudi, Kalula, and his old friend, Frank Pocock, had all drowned. Faced with starvation, treacherous rapids, dysentery, and flesh eating ulcers, discipline was breaking down. Valuable trading goods were being stolen, which represented days of foods for the expedition. Stanley punished transgressions with the whip, but even this resoluteness was ebbing away by the end. At the beginning of August, the column was near death. Nearly 100 people had died, and about 40 were desperately ill. All the local people wanted was rum, of which he had none. The only glimmer of hope came when he heard news of Europeans four days away. He sent letters, in English, French and Spanish, via his trusted companions, Uledi, Kacheki, mweni Pembi and Robert Feruzzi, to seek desperate help. Dear Sir, to any gentleman who speaks English at Boma, I have arrived at this place from Zanzibar with 115 souls of men, women and children. We are now in a state of imminent starvation and we can purchase nothing from the natives for they laugh at our kinds of cloth, beads and wire. There are no provisions in the country that may be purchased except on market days and starving people cannot afford to wait for these market days. I therefore have made bold to dispatch this letter craving relief from you. I do not know you, but I'm told that there is an Englishman in Boma, and as you are a Christian and a gentleman, I'd beg you not to disregard my request. The boy Robert will be better able to describe our true condition than I can tell you in this letter. We are in a state of the greatest distress, but if your supplies arrive in time, I may be able to reach Boma in four days. I want 300 cloths, each 4 yards long of such quality as you would trade with, which is very different from that which we have, but better than all, would be 10 or 15 man loads of rice or grain to fill our pinched bellies immediately. The supplies must arrive within 2 days or I may have a fearful time of it amongst the dying. Of course I hold myself responsible for any expense you may incur in this business. For myself, if you have such little luxuries as tea, coffee sugar and biscuits, by you, such as one man can easily carry. I beg on my own behalf that you will send us more supply, and answer the great debt of gratitude to you, upon their arrival supplies for my people, until that time I beg you to believe me. Yours sincerely, Henry Morton Stanley, Commander, the Anglo-American Expedition for the Exploration of Africa. P.S. You may not know me by name, I therefore add that I am the person who discovered Livingstone in 1871. The relief in the camp was palpable when the foray returned. Uledi and Kachetchi came running back with return letters and soon rice, grain, fish, bread, butter, sardines, jam, peaches, ale and rum were arriving. Stanley rushed to his tent to hide his tears of joy, relief and sadness. He remarks he was disturbed by the clean, white people he saw with their blue-green eyes, and knew he had lost 114 people on this trip. He specifically highlighted the wives, of which 14 had made it here, as one of the main reasons that they made it. They had been able to provide the environment of homeliness on occasions, which kept the men going. Stanley arrived with his expedition back in Zanzibar three months later, in November. On the steamship home, Via South Africa, he was accompanied by journalists and diplomats the whole way, but what he really missed were his expedition companions, for whom he now felt real affection. When he finally left Zanzibar for home on 13th of December 1877, his team followed him to the water and lifted him above their heads. Through all of their struggles, and despite a loss of favour in later years, he would never feel that kindred spirit again. He returned to controversy and complications in his personal life, but that is for a different story. Most ominously for the Congo, however, two people were waiting for Stanley in Marseille, a stop off on the way home. Here he met Baron Grendel and the American Henry Stanford. These were sent by the king of a young country with no length of history to rival the kingdom of the Congo or the Luba or Lunda kingdoms. These were there on behalf of the king of the Belgians. Belgium was only just over 50 years old at the time, but with envious eyes, their second king was slowly and surely hatching his plans against Central Africa. His name was Leopold II. Next time we'll meet him. We can see Congo at the start of the scramble for Africa. This was the time that we finally see how today's democratic republic of the Congo established its borders, but the people certainly paid a heavy price for it. So until then, Thanks for listening, and safe travels.